Chapter Nine, Part Two of A Diary from Dixie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Laurie Ann Walden. A Diary from Dixie by Mary Chestnut. Chapter Nine, Richmond, Virginia, Part Two. August first. Mrs. Wigfall, with the Lone Star flag in her carriage, called for me. We drove to the fairgrounds. Mrs. Davis's Landau, with her spanking bays, rolled along in front of us. The fairgrounds are as covered with tents, soldiers, etc., as ever. As one regiment moves off to the army, a fresh one from home comes to be mustered in and take its place. The president, with his aides, dashed by. My husband was riding with him. The president presented the flag to the Texans. Mr. Chestnut came to us for the flag and bore it aloft to the president. We seemed to come in for part of the glory. We were too far off to hear the speech, but Jeff Davis is very good at that sort of thing, and we were satisfied that it was well done. Heavens, how that redoubtable Wigfall did rush those poor Texans about! He maneuvered and marched them until I was weary for their sakes. Poor fellows! It was a hot afternoon in August, and the thermometer in the nineties. Mr. Davis uncovered to speak. Wigfall replied with his hat on. Is that military? At the fairgrounds today, such music, mustering and marching, such cheering and flying of flags, such firing of guns, and all that sort of thing. A gala day it was, with double distilled Fourth of July feeling. In the midst of it all, a messenger came to tell Mrs. Wigfall that a telegram had been received, saying her children were safe across the lines in Gordonsville. That was something to thank God for, without any doubt. These two little girls came from somewhere in Connecticut with Mrs. Wigfall's sister, the one who gave me my Bogotsky, the only person in the world, except Susan Rutledge, who ever seemed to think I had a soul to save. Now, suppose Seward had held Louisa and Fanny as hostages for Louis Wigfall's good behavior, eh? Excitement number two. That bold brigadier, the Georgia General Toombs, charging about too recklessly, got thrown. His horse dragged him up to the wheels of our carriage. For a moment it was frightful. Down there among the horse's hoofs was a face turned up toward us, purple with rage. His foot was still in the stirrup, and he had not let go the bridle. The horse was prancing over him, tearing and plunging. Everybody was hemming him in, and they seemed so slow and awkward about it. We felt it an eternity, looking down at him, and expecting him to be killed before our very faces. However, he soon got it all straight, and, though awfully tousled and tumbled, dusty, rumpled and flushed, with redder face and wilder hair than ever, he rode off gallantly, having, to our admiration, bravely remounted the recalcitrant charger. Now, if I were to pick out the best abused one, where all catch it so bountifully, I should say Mr. Commissary General Northrop was the most cussed and vilified man in the Confederacy. He is held accountable for everything that goes wrong in the army. He may not be efficient, but having been a classmate and crony of Jeff Davis at West Point, points the moral and adorns the tale. I hear that alluded to oftenests of his many crimes. They say Beauregard writes that his army is upon the verge of starvation. Here every man, woman, and child is ready to hang to the first lamppost anybody of whom that army complains. Every Manassas soldier is a hero dear to our patriotic hearts. Put up with any neglect of the heroes of the 21st July? Never. 
and now they say we did not move on right after the flying foe because we had no provisions, no wagons, no ammunition, etc. Rain, mud, and Northrop. Where were the enemy's supplies that we bragged so of bagging? Echo answers, where? Where there is a will, there is a way. We stopped to plunder that rich convoy, and somehow, for a day or so, everybody thought the war was over and stopped to rejoice. So it appeared here. All this was our dinner-table talk today. Mr. Mason dined with us, and Mr. Barnwell sits by me always. The latter reproved me sharply, but Mr. Mason laughed at this headlong, unreasonable woman's harangue and female tactics and their war ways. A freshet in the autumn does not compensate for a drought in the spring. Time and tide wait for no man, and there was a tide in our affairs which might have led to Washington, and we did not take it and lost our fortune this round. Things which nobody could deny. McClellan virtually supersedes the Titan Scott. Physically, General Scott is the largest man I ever saw. Mrs. Scott said, Nobody but his wife could ever know how little he was. And yet, they say, old Winfield Scott could have organized an army for them if they had had patience. They would not give him time. August 2nd. Prince Jerome has gone to Washington. Footnote. Jerome Napoleon Bonaparte, a grandson of Napoleon Bonaparte's brother Jerome and of Elizabeth Patterson of Baltimore. He was a graduate of West Point, but had entered the French army, where he saw service in the Crimea, Algiers, and Italy, taking part in the Battle of Balaclava, the Siege of Sebastopol, and the Battle of Solferino. He died in Massachusetts in 1893. End footnote. Now, the Yankees so far are as little trained as we are. Raw troops are they, as yet. Suppose France takes the other side, and we have to meet disciplined and armed men, soldiers who understand war, Frenchmen with all the élan we boast of. Ransom Calhoun, Willie Preston, and Dr. Knott's boys are here. These foolish, rash, hare-brained southern lads have been within an ace of a fight with a Maryland company for their camping grounds. It is much too Irish to be so ready to fight anybody, friend or foe. Men are thrilling with fiery ardor. The red-hot southern martial spirit is in the air. These young men, however, were all educated abroad, and it is French or German ideas that they are filled with. The Marylanders were as rash and reckless as the others, and had their coattails ready for anybody to tread on, Donnybrook Fair fashion. One would think there were Yankees enough and to spare for any killing to be done. It began about picketing their horses. But these quarrelsome young soldiers have lovely manners. They are so sweet-tempered when seen here among us at the Arlington. August 5th. A heavy, heavy heart. Another missive from Jordan, querulous and fault-finding. Things are all wrong. Beauregard's Jordan had been crossed. Not the stream, in Canaan's fair and happy land, where our possessions lie. They seem to feel that the war is over here, except the President and Mr. Barnwell. Above all, that foreboding friend of mine, Captain Ingram. He thinks it hardly begun. Another outburst from Jordan. Beauregard is not seconded properly. Alas, to think that any mortal general, even though he had sprung up in a month or so from captain of artillery to general, could be so puffed up with vanity, so blinded by any false idea of his own consequence as to write, to intimate that man or men would sacrifice their country, injure themselves, ruin their families, 
to spite the aforesaid general. Conceit and self-assertion can never reach a higher point than that. And yet they give you to understand Mr. Davis does not like Beauregard. In point of fact, they fancy he is jealous of him. And rather than Beauregard shall have a showing, the President, who would be hanged at least if things go wrong, will cripple the army to spite Beauregard. Mr. Mallory says, How we could laugh, but you see it is no laughing matter to have our fate in the hands of such self-sufficient, vain army idiots. So the amenities of life are spreading. In the meantime, we seem to be resting on our oars, debating in Congress, while the enterprising Yankees are quadrupling their army at their leisure. Every day, some of our regiments march away from here. The town is crowded with soldiers. These new ones are fairly running in, fearing the war will be over before they get a sight of the fun. Every man from every little precinct wants a place in the picture. Tuesday. The North requires 600,000 men to invade us. Truly, we are a formidable power. The Herald says it is useless to move with a man less than that. England has made it all up with them, or rather, she will not break with them. Jerome Napoleon is in Washington, and not our friend. Dr. Gibbs is a bird of ill omen. Today he tells me eight of our men have died at the Charlottesville Hospital. It seems sickness is more redoubtable in an army than the enemy's guns. There are eleven hundred there hors de combat, and typhoid fever is with them. They want money, clothes, and nurses. So, as I am writing, right and left, the letters fly, calling for help from the sister societies at home. Good and patriotic women at home are easily stirred to their work. Mary Hammy has many strings to her bow, a fiancé in the army, and Dr. Berrien in town. Today she drove out with Major Smith and Colonel Hood. Yesterday Custis Lee was here. She is a prudent little puss, and needs no good advice, if I were one to give it. Lawrence does all our shopping. All his master's money has been in his hands until now. I thought it injudicious, when gold is at such a premium, to leave it lying loose in the tray of a trunk. So I have sewed it up in a belt, which I can wear upon an emergency. The cloth is wadded, and my diamonds are there, too. It has strong strings, and can be tied under my hoops about my waist, if the worst comes to the worst, as the saying is. Lawrence wears the same bronze mask. No sign of anything he may feel or think of my latest fancy. Only I know he asks for twice as much money now when he goes to buy things. August 8th. Today I saw a sword captured at Manassas. The man who brought the sword, in the early part of the fray, was taken prisoner by the Yankees. They stripped him, possessed themselves of his sleeve buttons, and were in the act of depriving him of his boots when the rout began and the play was reversed. Proceedings then took the opposite tack. From a small rill in the mountain has flowed the mighty stream which has made, at last, Lewis Wigfall the worst enemy the President has in the Congress, a fact which complicates our affairs no little. Mr. Davis's hands ought to be strengthened. He ought to be upheld. A divided house must fall, we all say. Mrs. Sam Jones, who is called Becky by her friends and cronies, male and female, said that Mrs. Pickens had confided to the aforesaid Jones, nay Taylor, and so of the President Taylor family and cousin of Mr. Davis's first wife, that Mrs. Wigfall described Mrs. Davis to Mrs. Pickens as a coarse Western woman. 
Now, the fair Lucy Holcomb and Mrs. Wigfall had a quarrel of their own out in Texas, and, though reconciled, there was bitterness underneath. At first, Mrs. Joe Johnston called Mrs. Davis a Western Belle. But when the quarrel between General Johnston and the President broke out, Mrs. Johnston took back the Belle and substituted Woman in the narrative derived from Mrs. Jones. Footnote. Mrs. Davis was born in Natchez, Mississippi, and educated in Philadelphia. She was married to Mr. Davis in 1845. In recent years, her home has been in New York City, where she still resides, December 1904. In footnote. Commodore Barron came with glad tidings. Footnote. Samuel Barron was a native of Virginia, who had risen to be a captain in the United States Navy. At the time of secession, he received a commission as Commodore in the Confederate Navy. End footnote. We had taken three prizes at sea, and brought the men safely, one laden with molasses. General Toombs told us the President complimented Mr. Chestnut when he described the battle scene to his cabinet, etc. General Toombs is certain Colonel Chestnut will be made one of the new batch of brigadiers. Next came Mr. Clayton, who calmly informed us Jeff Davis would not get the vote of this Congress for President, so we might count him out. Mr. Maynardy first told us how pious a Christian soldier was Kershaw, how he prayed, got up, dusted his knees, and led his men on to victory with a dash and courage equal to any Old Testament mighty man of war. Governor Manning's account of Prince Jerome Napoleon. He is stout, and he is not handsome. Neither is he young, and as he reviewed our troops, he was terribly overheated. He heard him say, En avant. Of that he could testify of his own knowledge, and he was told he had been heard to say with unction, Allons, more than once. The sight of the battlefield had made the prince seasick, and he received gratefully a draft of fiery whiskey. Arago seemed deeply interested in Confederate statistics, and praised our doughty deeds to the skies. It was but soldier fare our guests received, though we did our best. It was hard sleeping and worse eating in camp. Beauregard is half Frenchman, and speaks French like a native. So one awkward mess was done away with, and it was a comfort to see Beauregard speak without the agony of finding words in the foreign language, and forming them, with damp brow, into sentences. A different fate befell others who spoke a little French. General and Mrs. Cooper came to see us. She is Mrs. Smith Lee's sister. They were talking of old George Mason, in Virginia a name to conjure with. George Mason violently opposed the extension of slavery. He was a thorough aristocrat, and gave as his reason for refusing the blessing of slaves to the new states, southwest and northwest, that vulgar new people were unworthy of so sacred a right as that of holding slaves. It was not an institution intended for such people as they were. Mrs. Lee said, after all, what good does it do my sons that they are light horse Harry Lee's grandsons and George Mason's? I do not see that it helps them at all. A friend in Washington writes me that we might have walked into Washington any day for a week after Manassas. Such were the consternation and confusion there. But the god Pan was still blowing his horn in the woods. Now, she says, northern troops are literally pouring in from all quarters. The horses cover acres of ground and she thinks we have lost our chance forever. A man named Gray, the same gentleman whom Secretary of War Walker so astonished by greeting him with, Well, sir, and what is your business? 
Describe the battle of the 21st as one succession of blunders, redeemed by the indomitable courage of the two-thirds who did not run away on our side. Dr. Mason said a fugitive on the other side informed him that a million of men with the devil at their back could not have whipped the rebels at Bull Run. That's nice. There must be opposition in a free country, but it is very uncomfortable. United we stand, divided we fall. Mrs. Davis showed us in the New York Tribune an extract from an Augusta, Georgia paper saying, Cobb is our man. Davis is at heart a Reconstructionist. We may be flies on the wheel. We know our insignificance. But Mrs. Preston and myself have entered into an agreement. Our oath is recorded on high. We mean to stand by our president and to stop all fault-finding with the powers that be, if we can and where we can, be the fault-finders, generals, or cabinet ministers. August 13th. Honorable Robert Barnwell says, The Mercury's influence began this opposition to Jeff Davis before he had time to do wrong. They were offended, not with him so much as with the man who was put into what they considered Barnwell Rhett's rightful place. The latter had howled nullification and secession so long that when he found his ideas taken up by all the Confederate world, he felt he had a vested right to leadership. Jordan, Beauregard's aide, still writes to Mr. Chestnut that the mortality among the raw troops in that camp is fearful. Everybody seems to be doing all they can. Think of the British sick and wounded away off in the Crimea. Our people are only a half-day's journey by rail from Richmond. With a grateful heart I record the fact of reconciliation with the Wigfalls. They dined at the President's yesterday, and the little Wigfall girls stayed all night. Seward is fading the outsiders, the cousin of the Emperor, Napoleon III, and Russell of the omnipotent London Times. August 14th. Last night there was a crowd of men to see us, and they were so markedly critical. I made a futile effort to record their sayings, but sleep and heat overcame me. Today I cannot remember a word. One of Mr. Mason's stories relates to our sources of trustworthy information. A man of very respectable appearance, standing on the platform at the depot, announced, I am just from the seat of war. Out came pencil and paper from the newspaper men on the qui vive. Is Fairfax Courthouse burned? they asked. Yes, burned yesterday. "'But I am just from there,' said another. "'Left it standing there all right an hour or so ago.' "'Oh, but I must do them justice to say they burned only the tavern, "'for they did not want to tear up and burn anything else after the railroad.' "'There is no railroad at Fairfax Courthouse,' objected the man just from Fairfax. "'Oh, indeed,' said the seat-of-war man. "'I did not know that. Is that so?' and he coolly seated himself and began talking of something else. Our people are lashing themselves into a fury against the prisoners. Only the mob in any country would do that. But I am told to be quiet. Decency and propriety will not be forgotten, and the prisoners will be treated as prisoners of war ought to be in a civilized country. August 15th. Mrs. Randolph came. With her were the Freelands, Rose and Maria, the men rave over Mrs. Randolph's beauty, called her a magnificent specimen of the finest type of dark-eyed, rich, and glowing southern womankind. Clear brunette she is, with the reddest lips, the whitest teeth, and glorious eyes. There is no other word for them. 
Having given Mrs. Randolph the prize among Southern beauties, Mr. Clayton said Prentice was the finest Southern orator. Mr. Marshall and Mr. Barnwell dissented. They preferred William C. Preston. Mr. Chestnut had found Colquitt the best or most effective stump orator. Saw Henry D.'s knot. He is just from Paris, via New York. Says New York is ablaze with martial fire. At no time during the Crimean War was there ever in Paris the show of soldiers preparing for the war such as he saw at New York. The face of the earth seemed covered with marching regiments. Not more than five hundred effective men are in Hampton's Legion, but they kept the whole Yankee army at bay until half-past two. Then, just as Hampton was wounded and half his colonel shot, Cash and Kershaw, from Mrs. Smith Lee audibly, How about Kirby Smith? Dashed in, and not only turned the tide, but would have driven the fugitives into Washington, but Beauregard recalled them. Mr. Chestnut finds all this very amusing, as he posted many of the regiments, and all the time was carrying orders over the field. The discrepancies in all these private memories amuse him, but he smiles pleasantly, and lets every man tell the tale in his own way. August 16th. Mr. Barnwell says, Fame is an article, usually homemade. You must create your own puffs, or superintend their manufacture. And you must see that the newspapers print your own military reports. No one else will give you half the credit you take to yourself. No one will look after your fine name before the world with the loving interest and faith you have yourself. August 17th. Captain Shannon, of the Kirkwood Rangers, called, and has stayed three hours. Has not been under fire yet, but is keen to see or to hear the flashing of the guns. Proud of himself, proud of his company, but proudest of all that he has no end of the bluest blood of the low country in his troop. He seemed to find my knitting a pair of socks a day for the soldiers droll in some way. The yarn is coarse. He has been so short a time from home he does not know how the poor soldiers need them. He was so overpoweringly flattering to my husband that I found him very pleasant company. August 18th. Found it quite exciting to have a spy drinking his tea with us, perhaps because I knew his profession. I did not like his face. He is said to have a scheme by which Washington will fall into our hands like an overripe peach. Mr. Barnwell urges Mr. Chestnut to remain in the Senate. There are so many generals, or men anxious to be. He says Mr. Chestnut can do his country most good by wise counsels where they are most needed. I do not say to the contrary. I dare not throw my influence on the army side, for if anything happened... Mr. Miles told us last night that he had another letter from General Beauregard. The General wants to know if Mr. Miles has delivered his message to Colonel Kershaw. Mr. Miles says he has not done so. Neither does he mean to do it. They must settle these matters of veracity according to their own military etiquette. He is a civilian once more. It is a foolish wrangle. Colonel Kershaw ought to have reported to his commander-in-chief and not made an independent report and published it. He meant no harm. He is not yet used to the fine ways of war. The New York Tribune is so unfair. It began by howling to get rid of us. We were so wicked. Now that we are so willing to leave them to their over-righteous self-consciousness, they cry, Crush our enemy, or they will subjugate us. The idea that we want to invade or subjugate anybody, we would be only too grateful to be left alone. 
we ask no more of gods or men. Went to the hospital with a carriage load of peaches and grapes. Made glad the hearts of some men thereby. When my supplies gave out, those who had none looked so wistfully as I passed out that I made a second raid on the market. Those eyes sunk in cavernous depths, and following me from bed to bed, haunt me. Wilmot Desisur harrowed my soul by an account of a recent death by drowning on the beach at Sullivan's Island. Mr. Porcher, who was trying to save his sister's life, lost his own and his child's. People seem to die out of the army quite as much as in it. Mrs. Randolph presided in all her beautiful majesty at an aid association. The ladies were old, and all wanted their own way. They were cross-grained and contradictory, and the blood mounted rebelliously into Mrs. Randolph's clear-cut cheeks, but she held her own with dignity and grace. One of the causes of disturbance was that Mrs. Randolph proposed to divide everything sent on equally with the Yankee wounded and sick prisoners. Some were enthusiastic from a Christian point of view. Some shrieked in wrath at the bare idea of putting our noble soldiers on a par with Yankees, living, dying, or dead. Fierce dames were some of them, august, severe matrons, who evidently had not been accustomed to hear the other side of any question from anybody, and just old enough to find the last pleasure in life to reside in power, the power to make their claws felt. August 23rd. A brother of Dr. Garnett has come fresh and straight from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and says, or is said to have said, with all the difference there is between the two, that recruiting up there is dead. He came by Cincinnati and Pittsburgh, and says all the way through it was so sad, mournful, and quiet it looked like Sunday. I asked Mr. Brewster if it were true Senator Toombs had turned brigadier. Yes, soldiering is in the air. Everyone will have a touch of it. Toombs could not stay in the cabinet. Why? Incompatibility of temper. He rides too high a horse, that is, for so despotic a person as Jeff Davis. I have tried to find out the sore, but I can't. Mr. Toombs has been out with them all for months. Dissension will break out. Everything does, but it takes a little time. There is a perfect magazine of discord and discontent in that cabinet only wants a hand to apply the torch, and up they go. Toombs says old Miminger has his back up as high as any. Oh, such a day! Since I wrote this morning I have been with Mrs. Randolph to all the hospitals. I can never again shut out of view the sights I saw there of human misery. I sit thinking, shut my eyes, and see it all. Thinking, yes, and there is enough to think about now, God knows. Gillen's was the worst with long rows of ill men on cots, ill of typhoid fever, of every human ailment, on dinner-tables for eating and drinking, wounds being dressed, all the horrors to be taken in at one glance. Then we went to the St. Charles. Horrors upon horrors again. Want of organization, long rows of dead and dying, awful sights. A boy from home had sent for me. He was dying in a cot, ill of fever. Next him, a man died in convulsions as we stood there. I was making arrangements with a nurse, hiring him to take care of this lad. But I do not remember any more, for I fainted. Next that I knew of, the doctor and Mrs. Randolph were having me, a limp rag, put into a carriage at the door of the hospital. Fresh air, I dare say, brought me to. 
As we drove home, the doctor came along with us. I was so upset. He said, Look at that Georgia regiment marching there. Look at their servants on the sidewalk. I have been counting them, making an estimate. There is sixteen thousand dollars, sixteen thousand dollars worth of Negro property which can go off on its own legs to the Yankees whenever it pleases. August 24th. Daniel, of the Examiner, was at the President's. Wilmot de Saussure wondered if a fellow did not feel a little queer, paying his respects in person at the house of a man whom he abused daily in his newspaper. A fiasco. An aide engaged to two young ladies in the same house. The ladies had been quarreling, but became friends unexpectedly when his treachery, among many other secrets, was revealed under that august roof. Fancy the row when it all came out. Mr. Lowndes said we have already reaped one good result from the war. The orators, the spouters, the furious patriots that could hardly be held down, and who were so wordily anxious to do or die for their country, they had been the pest of our lives. Now they either have not tried the battlefield at all, or have precipitately left it at their earliest convenience. For very shame we are rid of them for a while. I doubt it. Bright speech is dead against us. Reading this does not brighten one. Footnote. The reference is to John Bright, whose advocacy of the cause of the Union in the British Parliament attracted a great deal of attention at the time. End footnote. August 25th. Mr. Barnwell says democracies lead to untruthfulness. To be always electioneering is to be always false. So both we and the Yankees are unreliable as regards our own exploits. How about empires? Were there ever more stupendous lies than the Emperor Napoleon's? Mr. Barnwell went on. People dare not tell the truth in a canvas. They must conciliate their constituents. Now everybody in a democracy always wants an office. At least, everybody in Richmond just now seems to want one. Never heeding interruptions, he went on. As a nation, the English are the most truthful in the world. And so are our country gentlemen. They own their constituents, at least in some of the parishes where there are few whites, only immense estates peopled by Negroes. Thackeray speaks of the lies that were told on both sides in the British wars with France. England kept quite alongside of her rival in that fine art. England lied then as fluently as Russell lies about us now. Went to see Agnes de Leon, my Columbia school friend. She is fresh from Egypt, and I wish to hear of the Nile, the crocodiles, the mummies, the sphinx, and the pyramids. But her head ran upon Washington life, such as we knew it, and her soul was here. No theme was possible but a discussion of the latest war news. Mr. Clayton, Assistant Secretary of State, says we spend two millions a week. Where is all that money to come from? They don't want us to plant cotton, but to make provisions. Now, cotton always means money, or did, when there was an outlet for it, and anybody to buy it. Where is money to come from now? Mr. Barnwell's new joke, I dare say, is a Joe Miller, but Mr. Barnwell laughed in telling it till he cried. A man was fined for contempt of court, and then, his case coming on, the judge talked such errant nonsense and was so warped in his mind against the poor man that the fined one walked up and handed the august judge a five-dollar bill. "'Why, what is that for?' said the judge. "'Oh, I feel such a contempt of this court coming on again. 
I came up tired to death, took down my hair, had it hanging over me in a Crazy Jane fashion, and sat still, hands over my head, half undressed but too lazy and sleepy to move. I was sitting in a rocking chair by an open window, taking my ease and the cool night air, when suddenly the door opened and Captain Blank walked in. He was in the middle of the room before he saw his mistake. He stared and was transfixed, as the novels say. I dare say I looked an ancient gorgon. Then, with a more frantic glare, he turned and fled without a word. I got up and bolted the door after him, and then looked in the glass and laughed myself into hysterics. I shall never forget to lock the door again. But it does not matter in this case. I looked totally unlike the person bearing my name, who, covered with lace cap, etc., frequents the drawing-room. I doubt if he would know me again. End of chapter 9, part 2